So as we all know, life is bigger than any message or any message series, and so I was pretty frantically but deliberately rewriting almost everything I prepared for today after what happened yesterday. And I'm going to get to that in a second, because actually I do not believe in what some ministers do, which is kind of op-ed preaching, which is kind of going over what the news is. I think it's always essential in spiritual community, regardless of the identity of that community, to nest what is going on in our lives, in our aspiration as a spiritual community. So I'm going to respond to the atrocity in Arizona, the killing of six people, injuring, wounding 19 and what you won't hear me be uh, calling it is the tragedy in Arizona. Tragedy is something that no one can help. This was an atrocity. This was a mass murder. This was not a tragedy. That's a misreading and misunderstanding of what tragedy is. This is an atrocity. I'm going to try this morning to nest this violence, this vile violence in our aspirations as a spiritual community. And so this message here today, I want to tell you, it started, let's see, I think the statute of limitations is up. Uh, it started, let's say, four to five months ago when I was heading here, racing here to Wellsprings one Sunday morning, wanting to get here and be calm and centered and all that, all those things I like to do before I start the service. And I was going about 25 miles over the speed limit, and I saw those lights and the police officer pulled me over, and I dutifully, you know, I had, I've been through this drill before, not too many times, but I had it out, I was ready to hand him the, you know, ID card, my driver's license, and in a moment of complete honesty and perhaps utter manipulation, you can decide uh, what breakdown of my actions were one of each or the other, I said, sir, I'm a minister, I'm on my way to my congregation, on my way to a spiritual community. Almost reflexively, I held up my message notes and said, see, you know, I was really trying to prove I wasn't lying. And he said, it's okay. And he came back relatively quickly. And he said, I'm not going to give you a ticket. And then he said these words, watch your speed. Now, I did <laughs> all the rest of the way on 401 down to 113. I did and I do. What he was saying to me is, you know, watch your speed. You're breaking the law. An external ramification is going to cause you some pain if this happens again. It's safe to drive the speed limit, or at least closer to it than I was driving on that day. What he was telling me is, watch your speed. Avoid an external punishment that will result if you keep this up. But what about, I thought after that, watching our speed when there is no obvious external punishment, like someone is going to write us a ticket? What about watching our speed as we move through this life in all those ways when the costs are slightly more hidden, not a matter of someone writing us a ticket, but in fact what is happening that we are passing our very lives by because we are speeding through them. No one pulls us over for this very often in life, to watch our speed so we are not missing our lives as they go by. Friend of mine, a colleague, a very, what I would call her, a sly contemplative, a number of years ago, I saw her do this, witness this, when she was talking to a congregant, and she did it in such a lovingly disarming way. She was talking to a man who was all about getting stuff done, 
all about moving through his life with deliberateness and speed because there was so much to do, so much to do. I got to do that. I got to do that. Every time I heard him, he would talk about this. And one day, this friend of mine, this colleague, just started asking him a series of questions and the same question over and over again. And what will you do after that? 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 And by about the sixth or seventh, what will you do after that? It hit him. I'm going to die. (laughs) That's what he was racing towards. And he got it. I could actually see him taking a breath, almost gasp. Recognizing what his speed was costing him was missing his very life in the urge, the rush to go and do the next big important thing. There is a difference between speed and transformation, a difference between getting stuff done and being here in our lives. I was at a conference this past week when one of my colleagues said very, I think, emblematic of many of us. She said, I gulp down a cup of coffee and then I have to move on to the next thing. That is speeding through life, having to think that we go at such a pace where we need to infuse ourselves with artificial stimulants. And coffee is among, of course, the most innocent of them. To think that unless we artificially give ourselves fuel for facing our lives, then we will not be able to face our lives. And in fact, for reaching and by reaching for that artificial stimulant, we are missing our lives right there over and over and over again. Speed can be, in fact, the very enemy of the change that we seek, that deep transformation and desire to be ourselves in this life. I got a perfect illustration of this this past week. Like many people, this time of the year, I've decided to start working with a personal trainer. Not my lower body so much, but up here, I'm no particular Arnold Schwarzenegger type. So I figured, you know, I can try to work with some of this, gain a little more strength up here. And I sat down to run through sort of, you know, some of the weightlifting things we were doing. And I started to fall back into the patterns that I had known. A personal trainer entirely corrected me. Nope, move that there and hold this back. I had been racing through my workout regimen before because probably I didn't know how to do it, but also I just wanted to get it done. I could check that off my list and I could say, yes, I got my workout done. But you know what? It was not actually doing that much for me because I wasn't doing it right, because I was speeding through it, because I thought if I get this done, then I can say I've done it. It's making a change, but it wasn't. Sometimes in this life, it is when we are at our most slow that we produce the most deepest, most amazing Personal, physical, moral, spiritual change. I love this story. It's associated with Michelangelo, and it comes from the TV show Lost. And for me, there is nothing more true than Lost has ever been, so I'm going to assume this is an absolutely true story about Michelangelo. You agree. It is said that the master, day after day, hundreds of years ago, went into his study and looked at an 18-high-foot block of uncarved marble, would go there and sit there and stare at it day after day after day for months on end, would leave without picking up chisel at any point during that day, and then he would go home and have his supper. At one point, after months of this, a prince was coming through town, you know, princes who like to give artists money in those days to fuel their work, and he was a little concerned that maybe Michelangelo was losing it a little bit. And he said to the artistic master, sitting there looking at this uncarved block. What are you doing? 
And Michelangelo whispered, whispered, Still love Aranda. I'm working. And in three years, that 18 high foot block of uncarved marble became the David. Sometimes we do the best, most transformative, most beautiful, most life-altering work in this life when we take our time. Michelangelo created something beautiful, something that has lasted centuries and will last centuries. Only because it took a long time to produce. One of our core affirmations, our core convictions, our core beliefs here at Wellsprings is about abundance and joy. And the image that we give to abundance and joy is a garden. The thing you will know if you are a gardener is that it's not like making a bag of microwave popcorn. It takes time. It is not about instant gratification. It is about day in, day out, showing up, watering, weeding, planting, cultivating, seeding, all those things. It takes time. Sometimes my best teacher in this life and my best teachers in this life have been people who, in an objective sense, don't seem to have too much time left. I think I've told you before about a member of this congregation. Her name was Patty, who died before her 50th birthday, died of cancer. And in one of the final conversations that I had with her, our thoughts and the conversations turn, as they often do, to what may come next, what dreams may come. And she said her image, which she took from another writer, but for me now, this is Patty's image. (laughs) She wrote it in my mind because she inscribed it in my heart. She said that she believed the transition next was into what she called the great immensity. And I believe that that is where she is, to use that, although I don't think it's a geographic location. Because I saw her living, even as her time was running out in this world, with great immensity of heart and being. That is true abundance. And I must tell you this morning... My faith in that kind of great immensity is very, very challenged. I want to believe, I aspire to believe that the words of the representative Keith Ellison who spoke at our last Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, Keith Ellison who is the only Muslim member of our elected national body, who was targeted They were not successful, targeted not to be voted back into office by many of his political opponents simply for one reason, that they were offended that a Muslim would hold the highest office or one of the highest offices in this land. Keith Ellison said over and over again when he spoke to UU's last June in his firm conviction as a Muslim and as an American that there is enough. There is enough for Democrats and Republicans and independents. There is enough for women and men. There is enough for black and white and people of all races. There is enough in America for all of us. I'm so grateful for his words. 
because there are so many in this nation right now who believe and act and encourage others as if there is not enough. That there is only scarcity and there is only each of us opposed to the other, especially along lines of Democrat versus Republican or black versus white or immigrant status or all kinds of different ways in which we might think that we are divided. I feel this now, this scarcity, although I don't like it, especially after yesterday, after the attempted assassination of Representative Gabrielle Giffords and the killing of a federal judge and the murder, yes, of course, as well, of a nine-year-old girl. For those of you who are Phillies fans, you might know that she is the granddaughter of Dallas Green, used to manage the Phillies back in the day. Now, I want to say this about what motivated or perhaps did not motivate the murderer, the one who committed these atrocities. There is a lot we don't know yet. There is a lot we don't know yet. Although I do have to say I was disturbed in the hours right after that some commentators were already saying, oh, he's nuts. He's crazy. Look at his YouTube videos. Look at his MySpace page. He acted alone. In fact, I heard something very different this morning that, in fact, they're looking at someone, an older person who might have been exploiting him and leading him in to commit these acts. And I wonder, why is it that when a Muslim army doctor commits an atrocity, as one did in Texas some time ago against his fellow people in the armed forces, it is assumed, and perhaps correctly, rightly so, that he is part of a conspiracy that hates America, that perhaps hates Christians. Why is it assumed that he is part of a conspiracy, and yet some would rush to, not the defense, but the explanation of a white man, and say, no, he is on his own. Why isn't that we would see that he might be part of a larger movement that opposes human dignity for all people and for all Americans? So I want to keep in mind to know what I don't know. But I also know what I know this morning, and many of us know it too, which is that for years now, and especially in these last two years, there has been a political rhetoric a political rhetoric amping up the incitement to violence, talking about Second Amendment solutions, talking about quotes from founding ancestors, founding fathers taken completely out of context, that maybe it's time to water the tree of liberty with the blood of other people. All of these quotes, all of these incitements, all of these different ways that are part of us right now. That says violence is permissible and perhaps even a normative good in our political rhetoric with each other. People calling each other liars. People questioning who belongs and who does not. I think too much of our dialogue, and yes, I blame this particular show, has been driven by speed and fear. I like 24. I thought it was great television at times. But its metaphor for our lives was a ticking time bomb. No rationality, no reason, no space to sit back and reflect. No, if torture needed to be done, that's how we would get the information. And I'm sorry, there are millions of our fellow Americans who believe this is the way to live. And unless we start to face that, we will not be able to respond, not react, but respond 
to how easily it has become to question each other's motives and to dehumanize each other. Our fear gears in our society get cranked up so easily these days. They start moving and moving and moving. And all of a sudden, it's so easy for some people to assume that the problem is always with the others. Whether they're here in an undocumented fashion or whether the color of their skin is different. If only we would remove these others, then all of our problems would go away. This has an old and brutal name. It is called scapegoating, and it always inevitably leads to violence. I also have to cop to the fact that I feel my fear gears moving this morning. That I am angry, and I feel vulnerable. And I also have to call out those who have been contributing to this culture and this climate of violent rhetoric. Many of you know and saw yesterday, if you were taking a look at the news or reading it online, that Representative Gifford's district was literally targeted. Have you seen this? Literally targeted with a crosshairs by Sarah Palin's Organization, if you will. Sarah Palin, who tweeted at one point in connection with Representative Giffords and 20 of her quote unquote vulnerable fellow representatives. Sarah Palin encouraging this. Don't retreat, people. Reload. We must call out this kind of rhetoric if we are going to be true to peacemaking. And I want to aspire to do so calmly and clear-sightedly, but also with a view of what is at stake and also aware of who we can be. One of my favorite miracles, the miracle stories in the Christian scriptures associated with Jesus it's the loaves and the fishes. I think you all know it. The feeding of the 5,000, sometimes it is called. Jesus sort of says easily to the dictate, to the disciples, go and feed these 5,000 people who have come to see me preach. And they look down and they have five loaves and ten fishes and, huh, <laughs> what? And then all of a sudden the miracle happens and miracles defy rational explanation. So I'm not going to try and define how it happened. All we know if the story tells us, and it's a story, it's indicating something real about us and our potential to grow, is that they were fed. So even if I don't know exactly how it happened, I will one thing that did not happen. No one clicked in their fear gears. If the disciples or the crowd in that 5,000 would have clicked in their fear gears and they would have started in and it would have started and said, oh my God, there's not enough, let's hoard it for ourselves Let's keep those others out. Let's, in fact, start lying to each other, even disciple to disciple. Well, where'd that fish go? I don't know. If those fear gears had clicked in, there never would have been a miracle. The creative, generative capacity to exist in great immensity never would have been there. So for Sarah Palin and others this morning... I wish I would even say I demand a miracle. Now, the miracle is not this, that they become progressives like me. There's no great miracle in that, and that's not what I want. 
the miracle that I would hope for, the loaves and fishes that might multiply in our place and in our time is this, is that Sarah Palin might have a reflective space, a non-reactive space to actually not tweet, but stand up and say, I have been guilty of using violence as a symbol for our political life, and I vow never to do it again. I vow not to dehumanize those who disagree with me, and I call on all of us to form a covenant together, all of us who are politicians together, to say we will call each other out on whatever side of the aisle we are in, because this cannot ever, ever continue again, or we will take down our country, which is bigger than any of our affiliations. Of course, this is not just about Sarah Palin. This is about each and every one of us. Do we believe and will we take personal responsibility to with our political speech or our everyday speech not to dehumanize each other? Not to refer to those with whom we disagree as somehow less than human or questioning their basest motives that we are sure that they have. And will we even take a deeper step? And folks, I have to tell you, I know that this has happened with some of you. It has happened with me. It has cost me relationships and has not been pleasant or pretty, but it is necessary. Will we have the courage when we hear those people on our same side of the political spectrum, perhaps, starting to dehumanize and starting to question the motives? Will we have the courage to say, no, I stand on the side of love and a deeper vision. What you are doing is not permissible in my sight because you are perpetuating, even adding to in a small way, a culture of violence. Because anything that dehumanizes each other, it is an act of violence. Will we do that? Will you do that with me, even if it's family members, even if it's friends, even if it makes you personally uncomfortable? Because that's the only way this culture, this rhetoric of violence changes, is if we take personal responsibility. If we remember our deep and creative capacity to heal and to be healers and to recognize that spirit of love that is always open to us and always open within us, if we say yes. The last couple days, I've been focusing on the antidote to speed, and especially after last night, I've been focusing on words that for me are saving. I've been thinking of those words, although not a president has been shot, but Walt Whitman's words, O Captain, my Captain, penned to his great beloved Abraham Lincoln. And there's one poem I wanted to share with you this morning. It's one of my favorites, and some of you know it. It's called The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. I want to read through it with you. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. And I got to tell you, my wife and I don't have kids, but what I thought of at first was all of your children. Your children who hold a part of my heart with them and vice versa, I hope, because we are trying to create here a community of deep kindness and deep affirmation. And so I think what kind of world will they inherit? Our children, what kind of world will they inherit? I go and lie down 
where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. And I feel above me the day blind stars waiting, waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. It could be for you this morning, the wild geese. It could be as small as recognizing the marvel of an insect. It could be as small and as intimate and as necessary that holding the hand of your one true beloved or of your children. It could be in whatever way that still small voice of God of the divine speaks to you that's of your experience and your understanding. Whatever compels you to say as those ancient and sacred words namaste to recognize that sacred quality of life and to have it call forth your sacred quality where we can recognize that grace and rest in the world again and not be driven on by speed by compulsion by anger by fury by desire to strike back or strike out savor that grace It is not just saving for you. If you act in concert with it, you start to save all of us. And we start to live into that true and great immensity that is not someday, but is now. Amen. And may you live in blessing. You pray with me. O eternal spirit, may we have that quality of life that allows us to take a breath in the midst of stress and pain and anger. May we have that quality of being that allows us to respond rather than react. May we have that quality of being that recognizes when our own fear gears start moving and how damaging it is because our fear gears link up with other fear gears. And then we have a whole machinery of fear, of speed. May we do our part to take that machinery apart. May we recognize that there is no easy march to freedom and justice and deeper peace. But may we take that step day after day after day. With our breath, with our love, with our life. We are marching toward that world we would create. Amen.